This is Here Arizona, addressing issues, empowering our community. Everybody is tossing around the phrase new normal so much that it's become a cliche. The COVID-19 pandemic has changed just about everything about how we operate as a society and an economy. In January, a nonprofit could hold a fundraising dinner or fun run. Now it's lucky to be able to win a grant and solicit donations from the public, who are increasingly cash-strapped. Some members of the public who might have donated might now need to use the nonprofit services. On top of that, the realities of a widespread infectious disease put a different type of pressure on the institutions that serve the homeless. As of early June, the U.S. is officially in a recession, and that changes a lot for these organizations, as Kirsten Merrifield with the Alliance of Arizona Nonprofits explains. Well, the one thing I always like to start out this conversation with is talking about how a nonprofit organization fares or recovers for a recessionary period, which I think we can all agree that we are in or entering. Um, and so I spent some of my career actually working in an association serving the for-profit sector. And in tw- uh, 2007 through 2009, when we had that recessionary period, the for-profit companies had a decrease in revenue, obviously, but they also had a decrease in demand. And unfortunately, what happens in a nonprofit sector is that in a recession, we actually have a decrease in revenue, but we also have an increase in demand. So there's always a longer tail of recovery for a nonprofit to come through a recessionary period. And that is definitely what we're seeing here in related to this pandemic. So when everything first started hitting um, in about mid-March, when the CDC came out, as did the state of Arizona, with um, the eight-week period of canceling in-person events for 50 people or more, here in Arizona in spring, that is when the majority of our fundraisers are happening for our nonprofits. In the spring, the economy ground to a halt, and with it, the ability for these organizations to raise money. These galas, golf tournaments, um, even things that are raising funds for nonprofits through third parties, such as spring training, um, also brings in a lot of fundraising opportunities. So when that happened, basically overnight, a switch was turned off and a huge portion of funding was cut off for the nonprofit sector. They relied on these events, some of them for, you know, the amount that would sustain them through the entire rest of their fiscal year. So when that happened, um, there was an immediate concern um, because of the reduction in revenue. And the Alliance did a survey in about the third week of March to see what the impact was. And nonprofits were reporting about $36 million in projected net uh, revenue loss already at that point, just from those cancellations. And then we followed up with that report just recently because a lot of nonprofits said, well, you know, that was where we projected it. And now, unfortunately, it's gotten a lot worse a lot worse to the tune of tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. We project that already nonprofits have lost about $44 million, and that's only from about 320 nonprofits responding. So for a state uh, like ours that has more than 20,000 nonprofits, you can imagine um, how exponential that impact is magnified. With fewer donors, organizations are relying on grants for revenue. The Cruz and Healthmobile, which provides mobile primary care health services to homeless children across the valley, has seen a slight drop in donations, but a larger spike in community support, as its director, Dr. Sarah Beaumont, explains. 
for us as an organization individually, we have been able to apply for and receive some grants that have been uh, uh, set up through larger organizations, um, nationwide organizations. Uh, but certainly the level of volunteerism, the capacity or the ability to have hold fundraising events, which for a lot of these um, nonprofits is really where they get the money to run, um, has been impacted. Some homeless service organizations were able to get their fundraisers in before the pandemic. So for this year, things look stable. But there's a lot of uncertainty over what the next year or two may look like. Krista Cardona from the House of Refuge in Mesa says her organization was able to have its gala just in the nick of time, in February of this year. There is no idea when the next one will be. We don't really know what what these next um, eight months are going to look like um, and whether people are going to be ready to congregate in a room of 200, 300 additional people. So while we're moving forward with planning for next year's gala, which is, again, our major fundraiser of the year, we also are going to have a backup plan just in case um, we can't hold that. And so what does a virtual fundraising platform look like, you know, for a big event like a gala? Fundraising isn't the only function going virtual. At Phoenix Children's Hospital, its homeless youth outreach service is changing too. It usually operates out of an RV, but more recently, it's done most of its services remotely. Once COVID hit, uh, we had to actually ground our units. Uh, there's a lot of safety measures that uh, make it challenging to see patients who potentially have coronavirus on the mobile units um, as far as keeping them clean and safe for everybody else. Um, and so the decision was made to halt their use. And then what was pretty amazing is that Phoenix Children's Hospital within a week was able to mobilize telehealth services for us. And so since I believe it's about March 17th or 18th, um, we have been utilizing telehealth as well to reach out with our, our clients. And that in and of itself posed a lot of challenges at first as well. Telehealth is great for those who have access to a computer or a smartphone. But these organizations are designed to serve people who probably don't have access to that technology. Tech that was once a luxury is now a necessity for daily life during the pandemic. Obviously, for those people who are living on the streets that don't have access to phones or computers, uh, we're not able to reach them. But those who are in various transitional living programs, whether it's shelters or um, transitional group homes um, that we work with and partner with, uh, we've been able to utilize and harness our partnerships with them to get them access to connectivity, computers, devices so that we can still do um, face-to-face telehealth encounters. Arizona's homeless population numbers are showing no signs of declining. In fact, given rising unemployment figures and the potential for a future eviction crisis, the homeless population will probably increase. One prediction from Columbia University says there could be up to 250,000 newly homeless Americans in the coming years. What has not increased significantly is shelter space. In fact, it's decreasing. Shelter beds need to be kept six feet apart, which can cut capacity almost in half. You know, the, the challenge of the distancing, especially in shelter, is that we weren't able to shelter everyone looking for a shelter bed before coronavirus. And with the distancing between shelter beds, we're sheltering even less people. So almost, you know, like the sooner we can get back to relaxing 
some of that physical distancing between people, we can go back to serving the capacity we were. As Amy Schwabenlender from the Human Services Campus in downtown Phoenix explains, its doors are still open, and it's still very busy. But now anybody can't just walk in and get help. They're subjected to an in-depth screening. The standard set of questions really that the CDC had been recommending, but putting it into a process where every person coming to the campus, we started asking them those questions in March. Um, And then we started taking temperature. And so if someone said, yes, I have a a fever and a worsening cough, or I have a temperature over 100.4 degrees, we were immediately referring them from the greeter station or the welcome center to Circle of the City for a more in-depth health evaluation and medical assessment. And that allowed Circle of the City to then triage people, you know, were they symptomatic of COVID and needed to be tested or was it something else? And started this process of really clearing people for shelter, meaning a healthcare professional talking with someone and saying, we don't believe it's coronavirus related, so it's okay to have them in congregate shelter. These changes have not reduced the need for shelter. Employees can't serve the homeless community while working from home. Well, as you know, we haven't closed or shut our doors or stopped operating and providing services to people experiencing homelessness. So it, um, I think our situation is a little different from programs that had to stop operating or send everybody to work from home. Um, so I, I think our transition into post-COVID will be a little bit different. We are already dealing with PPE policies and distancing policies. I do think um, because of the population we serve, the most vulnerable population, people in crisis, um, that our operations are going to be in COVID response mode for quite some time, regardless of what you know the number of positive cases looks like in Arizona or in Maricopa County. It seems that it's hitting our population later. At the House of Refuge in Mesa, which focuses on providing transitional housing to families, services are changing too. Case management has really upped their game in terms of providing more case management services to the families, but just doing it virtually. Um, our community center that that um, provides um, uh, after-school care to, to children in our community um, for For the time being um, and through the summer, that's going to be done in a virtual way as well. So delivering um, fun packages to to the families so that the kids have things to do through the summer. Um, Our donation center that provides food to families, um, we're just doing drop-offs, just kind of a knock and drop off a bag at the door with all of the things that the families would need for the entire um, week. So we are, we're still delivering all of the services that the families need, but we've just had to change kind of our operating model, and we're doing it in a safe way to protect the health and safety of our employees, of our volunteers, and then, of course, of our residents. We're all prepared for operating differently through December 2020 and recognizing that the how we provide programs and services will probably have to be in this adopted way for that much time. Um, and after that, I think we're, you know, it's a little uncertain. The overall theme here is this. They're adapting as best they can to the changing situations. But with so much uncertainty, they can't even say what the next week will look like. So to predict the new normal is a challenge. But everyone we spoke with had some idea and lessons learned that they'd like to see applied in their fields going forward. 
For Dr. Beaumont, some of the changes forced by the pandemic are actually a plus and will make it easier for her to serve the community. First and foremost, we are expanding who we see. Uh, when we first started seeing in-person visits, uh, we continued to see well checks two years and younger because vaccinating youth is probably one of the most important things. And there's a lot of visits where we need to focus on development in those earlier years. But we've uh, now henceforth expanded to offering all well checks and new admission physicals in person at our fixed sites. And we do that over a certain time period. And then in the afternoons, we do our in-person sick visits. Um, the telehealth continues to be well utilized. It helps us screen and it's not something that's gonna go away for us at all. Um, in fact, I think it can be fairly well utilized in the future. And one of the ways we would like to utilize it is, um, you know, if you just think about being on the streets and at risk, you can't hop on a bus very easily to get to the clinic. Telehealth lets them see more patients faster. And because of that, some homeless services in Phoenix are expanding access to the Internet for their clients. I think Phoenix Dream Center is a really good example. Um, they expanded their Wi-Fi capacity for those people who did have phones. And then they also have laptops that they have donated, not to the patients, but to the purpose of providing telehealth visits. So if they know that one of their clients has a, uh, an appointment with us but doesn't have a phone, they give them the use of the computer in a safe, secure setting so that everyone else isn't listening in and then they can conduct that visit with us. And a lot of our group homes have done that. Um, you know, we work with Streetlight, we work with Homebase, uh, we work at UMOM, and they've all been very well accommodating with this, trying to help people get access. So the biggest issues, however, for those who didn't have phones was, is there a computer with video accessibility that they can utilize? And all of our partners have really stepped up. And like I said, others have really worked on expanding Wi-Fi access, which has been helpful. On top of that, the Human Services Campus is trying to expand its shelter space. And we've been pursuing uh, an amendment to our special permit for shelter beds. We've been pursuing for over a year with the city of Phoenix. And we're not losing sight of that because I think what COVID-19 has done for our population of people experiencing homelessness is really reveal that homelessness is a public health crisis and that housing is health care. And providing people with temporary shelter from the street helps them be not necessarily stabilized, but sometimes stabilized. It prepares them for moving into a permanent home. Another thing to consider moving forward are the homeless service organization's places at the table in government. Kristen Merrifield said that when Governor Doug Ducey was first looking at reopening businesses in the wake of the COVID-19 shutdowns, nonprofits were almost an afterthought. So when Governor Ducey was considering reopening the economy a few weeks ago, he reached out to his business leaders in the state and asked them for their um, feedback and response. And, you know, we felt that the nonprofits uh, needed to be consulted as well, you know, but we weren't initially asked to the table like business, hospitality, restaurants, etc. So we actually formed our own leadership group and got some swift recommendations from the nonprofit sector about reopening compiled those and sent those over to the Arizona Commerce Authority, who is leading that effort for the governor's office. And so we're starting to now hear a couple of references to the nonprofit sector in some of the, um, you know, the governor's press conferences and executive orders. So we think it's starting to work, um, but we still have some work to do um, to make sure nonprofits are viewed as an equal and collaborative partner along with our business colleagues. 
But there is cause for optimism. For Beaumont, the pandemic seems to have renewed focus on health care and seeking health care when one is feeling unwell. I'm still feeling very positive as things are going to open up and it has forced us to start thinking more innovatively, which I think is really important because I think we all sometimes get stuck in a rut thinking this is the route and this is how uh, things are going to be better. And now we, our eyes are opened up a little bit more and we're learning new and different ad, uh, avenues to really improve that access to care, which is really our, our mission uh, more than anything else. So. Uh, while there is a lot of negative associated with COVID, I think that we can definitely pull out some positive and continue to evolve and change with the times. This has created a wonderful outlet for innovation, right? How do we how do we get services to families in an innovative way? How do we how do we how do restaurants stay open using innovation? Um, Again, nonprofits are no different. The cities are no different. Cities are partnering with nonprofits to expand services. I mean, it's really, that has been really refreshing because it's forced a lot of companies and nonprofits to look at the services and how can we do this more efficiently and how can we even expand stuff. You just listened to Unsheltered from Here, Arizona. That's H-E-A-R, Arizona. This podcast is made possible by support from the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust. Since we're a relatively new show, please tell all of your friends to check us out. They can search for Here Arizona on their favorite podcast listening app, Apple Podcasts, Ditcher, NPR One, Spotify. And since we're all about empowering our community, we want you to be part of that conversation. Follow Here Arizona on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. In this episode, you heard from the Human Services Campus, which hosts many homeless service charities, including Circle the City, the St. Vincent de Paul Society, and others. You also heard from the Phoenix Children's Hospital's Cruise and Healthmobile and the House of Refuge in Mesa. For more information about those organizations and other Arizona nonprofits that work on the issue of homelessness, head over to our resource page at hearearizona.org. Here Arizona is a production of the Division of Public Service at Rio Salado College, which includes Sun Sounds, Spot 127, Soundbite, KBOC, and KJZZ. This episode was reported, written, and produced by me, Scott Bork. Linda Pastore is our executive producer. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Scott Bork from Here Arizona Podcasts. Since you're still listening, you're obviously a fan of ours. We want to hear more from you. Visit hearearizona.org and take our listener survey. That's H E A R Arizona.org. Thanks for listening.